Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Good morning, everyone. My name is Leonore Lopes, and I'm one of the pastors here at First Alliance Church. We've been focusing on the book of Romans for the last several weeks, and today we're going to be focusing on Romans, the fourth chapter. So just before we begin, I would like to just pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you give us this opportunity to study your word, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would just fill this place, illumine our eyes, open up our hearts, that we may hear all that you have to teach us, and that you would speak through me, in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to share a little story with you. And for those who don't know me, I need to allow you to know something, a little bit of a fact about me. And that is that those who do know me would describe me as an overachiever. Now, right now, very well, very, at this very moment, in my mind's eye, I can see certain people rolling their eyes and saying, really? That is true, and it is something about me, and it's always been something about me. So if the standard is here, my goal is here. And that is throughout every part of my life, and especially about my spiritual life. So it's quite natural, when I was in university, that I was very much attracted to a small prayer group that met on campus. Now, this was not a major uh, Christian group. This was just a small group of people, and they would meet very regularly for prayer. And I was attracted to them because it seemed to me that they were very, very serious about following God. So this was our life together as a group. And I must say that although we were small, every time we met, attendance was about 100%. So here goes, this was our life. We would meet twice on Sundays. We would meet Sunday morning and Sunday evening. We'd all attend a, a, a prayer meeting on, Saturday, on, sorry, on Wednesdays. And every Saturday night, we would meet for a fasting prayer meeting for about two or three hours. You heard me right, every Saturday night, and yes, fasting. But that wasn't everything. We had a very strict moral code for our day-to-day -day life. And in addition to that, we would go away for about uh, two or three days, a few times a year, for a retreat. But that's not everything, there's still more. <laughs> we would have outreach meetings or ministries a few times a year as well. And during that time, or just before that time in preparation, we'd have more fasting prayer meetings to prepare for that. We would specifically pray that God would be with us, that God would speak, and that God would give us protection. Still not all, there's more. Um, Now, I forgot what the other one was, but that's okay, excuse me. I think you've got the picture right now. There's a lot. You may be thinking, mm, that was a colorless life you lived. Oh, yes, I have to tell you this point that I remembered right now. Our vacation time was taken up by special meetings. So usually this little group, we didn't go anywhere because anytime we had vacation, we'd book it so that we could make sure that we were at these meetings. That's the last thing I remember to tell you. We had a colorless life, you may be thinking. And looking back, I would agree with you. However, at that time in my life, having come from a background of works, I thought this was the way to get right with God. So I was really attracted to this. 
Despite all our good intentions as this group, we fell into temptation and we fell into a pit that came upon us quite subtly and unknown to all of us. And that was that we developed an attitude that God owed us something. We were so pious. We were so much better than all those other Christian groups out there. We were serious. We were always fasting and praying. We were better. Now, if you had confronted us about that, we would vehemently deny that and say, are you kidding us? We're so humble. We know that we're not better than others. We know that we're saved by grace. Sadly, though, our behavior and our actions betrayed us. The leadership had uh, some very made some very unwise decisions that trickled down to the whole group. So we did dangerously stupid things on our many hours on the road. I distinctly remember a time when I was sitting in the back seat of a vehicle, and someone uh, we were traveling as a group of, of vehicles, and someone in another vehicle wanted a snack, and we had the bag of chips in our vehicle. So this bag of chips was transferred from one vehicle to the other while we were both traveling 100 kilometers plus. If right now in your life you are doing your G1 or your G2, please never do something that stupid. Because really, the lives of everybody in those two vehicles was endangered for the sake of a snack. The other thing that happened in that group is that our leadership would never or rarely ever schedule enough traveling time to get from one place to the other in all this ministry that we were doing. Never. So what happens? Speeding became a notorious habit amongst this group. And the, the justification for that was, well, we're doing God's work. He's going to protect us. All of this came to a very abrupt end. In early September, or in the early 90s, on a sunny Sunday afternoon, when one of our members was tragically killed on the 401. Where was God? Where was our protection? Us, this elite group, was touched by tragedy. How did this happen? You see, we lived like God owed us something. He owed us his protection, and we thought we were better than others. Is it possible that you too may find yourself in a similar situation, where what you think you believe is actually not what you believe, because your behavior tells something different? Have you ever been angry with God consistently because he hasn't answered your prayers just as you wanted them? Have you measured your faith by outward practices? No good Christian would ever do that, or no good Christian would ever go there, or no good Christian would ever wear that, or whatever it is. Do you ever feel that, you know, I'm okay, I don't really need too much religion. God, if I need you, I'll go to you, but otherwise, I'm okay. Or maybe for you, it's that constant cycle of failure, that you never feel like you'll be a good enough Christian, that you never feel that you can merit God's approval because you just can't do it. So you may even give up. What do all these actions tell you about your attitudes towards your need for Christ? Well, the ancient church in Rome had a very similar situation. Romans, the book of Romans, was written to the church in Rome, and in the first chapter, Paul describes this church as all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. We also know their faith was reported all over the world. 
So this was a church, a group of people who loved and followed Jesus. But they got some things wrong. Just, my, just like my little prayer group, we added something to what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And so this ancient church in Rome added the law to what it means to follow Jesus. And so it seems that no matter how hard we try as evangelicals, we still slide too often into thinking we are saved by faith, but then after that, we're on our own. We have to improve our actions by works. This mindset can lead to an attitude that God owes us something or that we're better than others. If we seem to be doing well by our outward measure, we seem to think we're better than others and maybe we get puffed up and proud. And if we seem to be struggling, then we're constantly feeling others are better than us and we can't make it. So we get into a vicious cycle of striving, striving, striving. And Paul in Romans 4 is giving the church good news by telling them that this is not the way to go and he wants to correct their mindset. So let us go to the text and read from Romans 4, chapters 1, sorry, verse 1 to 12. You can look it up on your, in the Bible if you have it or on your phone or wherever or if you're in the in sanctuary in your pew and you've got this blue Bible, it's on page 913. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessed only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstance was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Have to understand a few things here. First, the law was of utmost importance to the Jewish people. They felt that after they followed Jesus that they needed to continue to keep this law and also that the Gentiles needed to keep this law to define themselves as believers. If we go back to them, we have to understand that unlike us, they did not have the full New Testament, nor did they have centuries of theologians who wrestled with some of these difficult issues. So in chapter 4, Paul is trying to clarify these things for them and he's really dealing with the question is, what is your foundation of faith? Just my, like my little group, we believed we were, we were saved by grace, but then we added. And so these people also added. They added the law. 
And Paul was admonishing the Roman church saying, no, no, you've got it wrong. The law was their identity. It set them apart from the pagan societies around them. It outlined the dominant marks of what it meant to be Jewish. The dietary laws, the Sabbath, and circumcision. The Roman church, or the Roman believers, they brought all of this when they followed Jesus into their faith with them. You gotta understand at that time, there wasn't a group called Christianity. Those who followed Jesus were considered a sect, a sect of Judaism, okay? So it was still defining who they were. They were Jewish people, and they believed that Jesus was the, 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 the Messiah that they were long waiting for. And so they focused on this as part of what it meant to be faithful. So Paul, in order to bring home to this, he uses Abraham as an example. The people at this time were taught that Abraham followed the law perfectly, which is why he was considered righteous, and he became the father of all Jewish people. And Paul was trying to, say, to correct them on this, and he made two major points. The, the first point is he made that trusting the promise not the law made Abraham righteous. And the second thing, circumcision was a sign or a seal, not a measurement of their faith. Abraham, we have to remember, was a Gentile. He was not a Jewish person at this time when he was called. The ancient Near East society had many deities. They had all kinds of gods, and they followed all kinds of gods. But their relationship with their gods was one that was kind of nebulous. It was out there, some gray matter that they worshipped. They really weren't sure. They could not connect with that God. And then out of this, this is Abraham's experience, God calls him and says, go to a place that I'm going to lead you to. And Abraham trusted God so much, he said, I will go. And God says, this is what made him righteous. He did this long before the law was ever instituted. So it was this belief in God that made Abraham righteous. And we know that's right because we look at Abraham's life and we see that he did things that showed that he believed. He got up, he left everything he knew, and he went to another place, but he wasn't sure where he was going. I'm sure that his relatives thought he was nuts when he said, I'm leaving. And they said, where are you going? I'm going somewhere, I don't know, God will lead me. You could imagine what people thought of him, but he did. And if you follow Abraham's life, you see that he continuously followed God. Even when circumstances made it seem impossible that God's promises would come to pass, he still hung on to God, he still believed, and at one point, uh, Abraham says, God, you, my, you are my exceedingly great reward. God was his reward, not the things that God gave him. So he really believed. And you know, we really live out what we believe. So for example, we all in this room and those of you watching online, we generally all believe in gravity. So none of us are gonna walk off the side of a building because that's what we believe. If we step into an elevator, we generally believe that the technicians and the engineers and the building superintendents and the safety inspectors and everybody involved in making those machines work have done their job and have done their job properly. Because if we didn't believe that, we'd probably not want to step in that elevator. Okay? If we believed, all of us, whether or not it's true 
If we believe that there was someone out there in the lobby, and for you at home, if there was someone on your doorstep, who had a loaded gun and was screaming and shouting and was sh uh, igniting the gun and shooting left, right, and center, I can be assured of one thing. None of us would be sitting here as calmly as we are right now. Some of us might be crying. Some of us might be hanging on to somebody. Somebody might be shouting out and giving instructions. Somebody might be jumping up and turning off the lights and closing the doors. And a lot of us would probably be hiding underneath our seats. That's what we would do if that's what we believed, regardless if there was someone out there. So you see, we really do act out what we believe. And although, just like my small little prayer group, we thought we believed one thing, but our behavior told us we believed something else. And in the case of Abraham, what he said and what he did lined up. He really did trust God, and this was his righteousness, not the keeping of the law. Let me give you another example. Sometimes families fall apart and they break down, and sometimes children have to be taken out of those families and put into foster homes. For those children, they experience a lot of insecurity. They don't know if they'll ever go back to their families, and if they do, are, is everything going to be okay? Do they have to uh, act perfectly so their families won't break apart again? Or, in their foster homes, do they feel like something they'll do, they may get kicked out of this, this particular family? And unfortunately, in our world, these children have much to be insecure about. But this is totally different from the promise that God gave to Abraham. It was a one-way covenant. God was saying to Abraham, is God's promises to Abraham was just accept who I am. Accept that I will do this for you. Just trust me. And Abraham was just to rest in that, and so he did. So I ask you just to reflect on your actions. What do they tell you about what you actually do believe? The second point that Paul made was that circumcision is a sign. The sequence here is important. The promise came first, and then a few chapters later in the Bible, we read about circumcision. By the time the Roman church was getting together, circumcision had become a symbol of being Jewish, of being part of the family of God. So if you were uncircumcised, you weren't part of the family of God. It became an entity on its own, right? And what Paul is saying to them here is, that's not the way you should look upon it. Whether or not you're circumcised does not necessarily mean you are in or out of the family of God. Just like a wedding wing is a symbol of someone who's married, so circumcision at this time was a symbol of someone who was following Jesus, or sorry, who was in the Jewish faith. If a person is married and slips off their wedding ring for whatever reason, maybe they're washing the dishes or whatever reason, they take their rings off, they're not any less married than they were before they took the ring off. And the ring really does not make them married. It's the vows that they made to each other that make them married. Or another example, if you're a student, either in high school or university or college, and you work really, really, really hard, and you study, you study really hard, and at the end of all those years, you get either a diploma or a degree or some kind of piece of paper that has your name on it in big handwriting and a lot of signatures and the name of the university or college or high school. 
If you think about it, that paper does not mean very much. Um, it's backed up by the education that you have had, by the studies that you have done. So if you cheated your way through and you get this piece of paper, and then you land your first job and you don't know what you're doing, it's going to be quite obvious that that piece of paper is meaningless. Okay? So this is what circumcision is. It's just a sign. The transaction was the faith that Abraham had to believe in God, and then after that, circumcision came to be a sign of that. So what Paul is saying here is that circumcision is the seal. It's not what makes you coming into the family of God. What, comes into, what makes you come into the family of God is the trust you have in God. Sometimes as believers, we look to doing more in our Christian walk. We think if we could just do more, maybe more Bible studies, or maybe attend more meetings, or maybe attend more small group, groups, we'll attain, God's, we'll attain God's approval. And God, in fact, is saying the opposite. Empty yourselves. Don't come to me with all of who you are, all that stuff. Empty all of it. So will you empty yourself before Christ, trusting completely in his promise to make you righteous? And here's the crux of it all. If you're a person who believes, in, some, who believes in, in Jesus and wants to follow him, but you're trusting in something else, whether it be the law, whether it be whatever it is, and if you really think about it, you are in control. If I'm trusting the law, I have some measure of control here. I can either do or not do. Okay? And if I do very well, I feel pretty good about myself. If I don't, I struggle. But then I still have the choice, well, maybe I can give up on this or not. I have a measure of control in my life. And I'm elevating myself up to a certain level that, you know what, I'm okay. Or, you know what, God and I can negotiate because I'm on a higher level now. Well, the reality is, God owes us nothing. And we have to completely come to that point where we empty ourselves completely and realize that God is God and we are not. When we empty ourselves completely, we really, really need to trust God. So I ask you, will you empty yourself before Christ, trusting completely in him? And then will you take steps to live out that trust? Are you willing to forgive someone who has hurt you and trust that God will heal you and will also take care of that other person to fulfill God's good purposes in that person's life? Or will you trust God when he says to tithe your resources? And God challenges us that in Malachi 3.10. Will you trust that if you give 10% of all your resources to God's work, that the 90% you live with will be more than sufficient to take care of you? Can you trust God to let go of all your bitterness your anger, your jealousy, and let God bring healing and wholeness into your being. Can you trust? May we be encouraged to rest in the knowledge that the promise keeper is trustworthy. May we know deep in our souls the magnitude of that promise, that there is nothing in us that can merit the promise, but that's okay. That's good news, 
because we don't have to strive any longer. Because the gift has been freely given and God is a promise keeper and he will do the impossible for us. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the promise keeper and that you have already paid that price for us, something that we could never, ever be able to do on our own. And we thank you, Lord God, that you have asked us simply to rest in you and trust. Give us that grace to trust in you with every part of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.